All right, well, first, thank you to OTJR and to OCAF for the invitation to be here. It's pretty much the ideal way to come back to the UK. So you both have sunshine and you have really vibrant groups that have been operating and organizing things in, in Oxford for a long time. So it's, it's an absolute privilege to be here, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. So that's the positive. Um, the other, the, the, the more challenging side is actually, so the paper that I'm going to talk about today, the, the title of which is International Criminal Law and Border Control, The Expressive Role of the Deportation and Extradition of Rwandan Citizens. Now, there's a bit of reverse engineering happening here as far as this presentation goes, because I actually, I've been writing it as a paper, so it's a draft paper, um, and so... I might, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit held to my notes here, but please, I would encourage you as a result to put up your hand, ask a question, you know, you can, you can definitely push me away from them if there's something that's particularly interesting to you. I'm also conscious of um, the diverse audiences here, so um, as Ivo said, uh, I've just come back from three months um, in Rwanda, so we've been very embedded in the social and political nuances um, of doing um, research there. Um, but this paper is, is, is predominantly based actually on case law analysis, so cases um, that ha that I, from a data set that I've been generating over the last year and a half. So, um, so I'm very happy to speak to the relationship between these things, the relationship between the case law and the argument that I put forward here in relation to international criminal law and immigration law and the specific political environment in which this is playing out in the Rwandan context. So, so the combination of OTJR and OCAF is, is really useful here because I hope we can speak, I hope I am able to speak across those, those two um, areas of knowledge. Um, but please do push me in one or other direction as, as your particular interests take, take us. All right, so on the um, 20th, let's see if I can get the slides going. Okay. Um, just give me a second. Thanks to be moving this track back, so. Wow. So, I've got so used to yes. looking that, but I'm... Okay. Okay. Oh, no, not quite. Okay. <laughs> Zoom in. Okay, we're good. Maybe try with the space? Yeah, or with the arrows? Yeah, maybe sometimes it's... Or the arrows? Yeah, maybe the arrows, um, because this one is a bit possessed. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you, Ava. All right, so it was at 11.30 p.m. on the 24th of January 2012 when the former Rwandan politician Leon Mujicera arrived at Kigali International Airport following his deportation from Canada to face domestic criminal charges in Rwanda, including incitement to genocide. And you can see Mr. Mujicera coming off the plane there. He would soon be followed by Jean Bosco Nkindi, who was transferred from the UN International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, 
as part of the tribunal's completion strategy as it moved towards closure and some of, the, some of its remaining caseload was transferred to Rwanda um, after a series of decisions that I can talk about. Um, and Unkindi would soon then be followed by Charles Bandora, who's, who's extradited from Norway um, on the 15th of March 2013. Now, now these high-profile individuals um, caught the passing interest of the international media. And these cases, and they also caught the photography of the Rwandan Genocide Tracking Unit, so these were particularly well-documented arrivals, and they certainly made all of the headlines in the Rwandan papers, but they also got, as I said, picked up um, within the international media. And in the international media, these cases were generally framed in terms of the ongoing fight against impunity. So um, they, they were seen as the latest victories in establishing the obligations to prosecute for international crimes. Yet, underneath these brief headline-grabbing moments, I'm going to suggest today that there's a much more complex picture that involves at least 120 cases concerning the extradition, deportation, or trial of Rwandan nationals suspected of involvement in international crimes that have occurred and are currently occurring in 20 countries around the world. So, with the work of the UN International Criminal Tribunal, and for those of you familiar with the, with the Rwandan context, the localized Kachacha courts, with the work of those institutions concluding, these cases are really the final phase of what is an extremely extensive set of accountability processes that have followed the 1994 Rwandan genocide. And to date, what this is, these proceedings have seen 18 individuals deported or extradited to Rwanda to face genocide charges before the Rwandan National Courts. While 30 individuals have had their extradition to Rwanda denied, 34 have faced domestic criminal trials for international crimes and for immigration-related crimes outside of Rwanda. And 14 Rwandan nationals have had their refugee protection or their residency permits revoked on the basis of an allegation of an involvement in an international crime. So what I want to do today, over the next half an hour, is, is argue that in order to understand the drivers and goals of these cases, we need to take account of the expressive work that these proceedings, is doing, these proceedings do, both inside Rwanda and in the countries in which these cases are being adjudicated. And what I want to suggest is that an analysis of these cases shows the work that international criminal law is doing, both in expressing the, the generally um, um, agreed universal condemnation of genocide, but paradoxically, at the same time, reinforcing national border control. And I'll argue that if the expressive function of international criminal law is to be taken seriously, as a large amount of the literature in this particular um, area of study at the moment suggests it should, then we actually need to start to look at what the different audiences are that are being addressed by cases that make use of international criminal law. So I'm going to build this argument around three points. 
First, I want to place the Rwandan cases within the wider literature on the intersection between international criminal law and refugee law, highlighting how these bodies of law have been generally understood to be mutually reinforcing, um, and how insights from domestic and transnational criminal law, which is much more sensitive to the implications of the use of criminal law in border control, make visible the entanglements of ICL within domestic immigration regimes. Calling into question, I think, how comfortable we are with the assumption that the only expressive value that these trials are doing is to fight impunity through expressing condemnation of genocide. Second, I then want to propose that a focus on Rwandan nationals and the cases relating to them specifically allows us to look across jurisdictions, across these 20 countries, to see these domestic entanglements. And that's going to be based on this independent data set that I've been generating, um, which concerns 120 cases concerning 100 Rwandan nationals suspected of involvement in international crimes. And this allows us to see how the initial adjudication concerning these individuals is most clearly in the data set um, an outcome of a matter of domestic immigration law prior to being an outcome of in relation to international refugee law or international criminal law. Immigration proceedings regularly foreshadow extraditions, deportations and criminal proceedings against the same individuals resulting in a wide range of at times very contradictory decisions across jurisdictions and within them between administrative um, legal decision making and criminal legal decision making. And then finally I want to argue that an examination of the expressive work that these cases offer, does uh, offers some explanation for the differences we're seeing across, across and within these jurisdictions. These cases communicate not only an ongoing recognition of the wrong of genocide, but also what constitutes a fair trial in Rwanda, what constitutes a criminal migrant in the countries in which these decisions are being made, and to a Rwandan audience, the extent of the punitive reach of the Rwandan state into diaspora communities. So it's really those three expressive functions that I want to tease apart as saying we need to be looking at those expressive functions alongside the more comfortable and, and established one of, of the recognition of the wrong of genocide. So we're also talking about what, we're also reflecting what constitutes a fair trial in Rwanda specifically. What is the domestic response to criminal migrants and how is the Rwandan government able to extend its punitive reach across a very large number of states into particularly diaspora communities? Okay, so that's where I'm going. Now, let's see how I go with this. Yeah, go oh, okay. with the arrows. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the use of criminal law in border control has gained increasing and warranted international scholarly attention. Um, international criminal law is no exception, although the orientation of the debates in international law 
is somewhat different to those at the national level. So while domestic scholarship is characterized by a deep skepticism of the expansion of immigration-related offenses and the use of deportation as a means of sanction, the focus in international criminal law has been on the exclusion of individuals for international crimes from the protective sphere of refugee law. This exclusion is generally seen as justified, legitimate, and important for the integrity of both of these bodies of international law, as it reinforces the condemnation of international crimes. So the outcome is that in one realm, the examination of the use of criminal law is from a position of caution, while in the other, it's much more comfortably expansive. So to some extent, I think this different orientation in the use of criminal law to secure borders in the international sphere is unsurprising. As international criminal law and refugee law have historically and currently been widely construed to be mutually reinforcing. In the aftermath of World War II, the Refugee Convention and the Charter for the International Military Tribunal for Nuremberg created the foundational agreements upon which much of the subsequent international legal apparatus of both international criminal law and international refugee law has been built. These two bodies of law were co-constitutive and understood to support one another. The first criminal trials in Nuremberg were being brought just as the Refugee Convention was being drafted. So as uh, Janet Halley has said, these were not hermetically sealed undertakings. There was, there was, there was, there was a, a movement of ideas between them. The exclusion of suspected war criminals from refugee protection was seen as a way of protecting the integrity of the asylum system while simultaneously reinforcing the international condemnation and universal sanction of international crimes. It's important to note that at this very early junction, the key expressive work of international criminal law that sits at the center of my analysis today was already extended beyond the simple communicative function of a particular punitive sanction handed down in a specific case to the much wider claims of its role in signaling moral outrage. These cases are generally understood to be signaling more than just the wrongdoing of the individual. They are generally understood to be signaling a collective statement around the, 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 the wrong of the action that's been undertaken. So it was a result of this assumed compatibility of these newly developing areas of international law that there was very little debate or disagreement over the drafting of Article 1FA of the Refugee Convention which excludes individuals from the scope of the convention where there are serious reasons for considering, and I quote, that they have committed a crime against peace, a war crime, or a crime against humanity as defined in the international instruments drawn up to make provision in respect of such crimes. Now, the concurrent development of ICL and international refugee law is not to say that critiques of this area have been neglected, but rather to draw attention to the fact that these critiques predominantly focus on enhancing the compatibility between these areas of international law. In particular, important concerns have been raised around the consistency across jurisdictions of the standard of proof that's set by the benchmark, serious reasons for considering, and debates around the use of international criminal law to determine what constitutes committed um, within Article 1FA. So much of the work in this area has offered suggestions on how international criminal law 
could harmonize the interpretations of Article 1FA across domestic jurisdictions. However, what's been generally neglected in the scholarship, and I think comes out when you start to look at a specific case and are able, to, a specific set of nationals that allows you to look across jurisdictions, and is that most of these decisions are actually initially being made in relation to domestic immigration law. There are extensive domestic entanglements in which international criminal law plays a varying role. Um, and this has often been acknowledged in the literature but then explicitly excluded from the doctrinal discussions that are looking much more at the, at the harmonization of, of international law generally. So a focus on cases relating to Rwandan nationals, all of which concerns the allegations of, invo of involvement in international crimes, provides an opportunity to look across jurisdictions to describe the domestic immigration and extradition laws, which I think have been obscured due to the strength of the moral impulse of fighting impunity, so deeply embedded in international criminal law and its assumed compatibility with the exclusion clauses in the refugee law. Such an anal analysis, I, say, I argue, questions how comfortable we should be with the ways in which these areas of law are mutually reinforcing, and asks for a closer interrogation of the different types of expressive work that are at play. The importance of expressing ongoing condemnation of the Rwandan genocide and establishing the individual responsibility of those involved. And this asks us to, to really start, off, to start focusing on the Rwandan cases. So let's, and this asks us to turn our attention away from the debates in ICL and refugee law towards Rwanda and what's happened here and why have we seen this huge number of cases occurring all around the world, all concerned with the allegation of involvement in the Rwandan genocide. To understand the reach and extent of this final phase of post-genocide justice seeking, it's really necessary to turn to Rwanda and start with the formation and the work of the Rwandan Genocide Fugitive Tracking Unit. This unit was established in 2007 and as a, as a subset of the National Pro, um, Public Prosecution Authority. The establishment of the GFTU was preceded by an initial partnership in um, 2004 between Interpol, the ICTR and the National Prosecution Authority. This led to the issuing of 300 Interpol um, red notices against Rwandan nationals, including the then, what was then nine um, remaining ICTR fugitives. While these Interpol warrants have been the centerpiece of the Genocide Fugitive Tracking Unit's work, um, the number of indictments issued by the Rwandan government goes well beyond this. The official GFTU report from April this year stated that there are 119 indictments that have been issued, and this gives us a little indication, but there's 100, uh, sorry, 911 indictments that have been issued by the Rwandan government according to the Genocide Fugitive Tracking Unit's most recent report. However, this gives us very little indication of how many actual cases are going forward. Um, so so there, are, there are a large number of indictments that are being issued that is doing some expressive work in Rwanda as well. Um, 
but it doesn't tell us how many actual cases are going forward. And so, as a result, what this research does is, is base its claims and its findings on an independently generated data source that maps as comprehensively as possible all of the jurisdictions in which actual cases against Rwandans have been heard and where decisions have been issued. And this is where I get the figure of 120 cases. So ideally the data set includes copies of these decisions, however these are not always publicly available. Um, I've also had a number of research assistants who've been working on this across a range of languages because a lot of the time we're moving across various European countries, um, as you'll see in, in later slides. But so, so we've been moving, there are, there, you're moving across a lot of different jurisdictions um, and, and languages as a result. So, but we, most of the time we're looking at the actual cases that have been decided. Where I haven't been able to get hold of the cases, some of these decisions are made on executive orders alone. So where I haven't been able to get hold of the cases or there hasn't been any judicial determination, then um, I triangulate the data based on three, independent, three separate sources to confirm that there is actual some form of um, formal proceeding against these particular named individuals. And so the, the current data set suggests that there, there are 120 cases concerning 100, indivi 100 individuals. Um, in this respect, I understand a case as including all the sets of proceedings. So initial proceedings and any appeals is included in, in the notion of a single case. As you'll see from these figures there, the reason why you have more cases than suspects is because we're, often, we're, we're going to have immigration-related proceedings against those individuals and a set of cases there. We're then also often seeing domestic trials or we're seeing separate extradition proceedings. So what is key is that these, in all of these cases, what we see is that these decisions are being made under these three regimes. Immigration or asylum proceedings, domestic criminal trials, or extradition proceedings. And so here we get a sense and I won't talk you through the figures there, but here you get a sense of how those figure, how those cases have played out in terms of the numbers that have been decided under extradition proceedings, the numbers under immigration law, um, and the resultant outcomes. So you, you're seeing 30 of the suspects had their extradition to Rwanda denied, um, six of which have been followed by domestic trials, um, 12 of been extradited and are currently subject to domestic proceedings. 31 cases have related to immigration law. 14 of these cases have resulted in the revocation of refugee protection or the removal of um, the suspect's residency permit. Nine of these cases have been followed by extradition proceedings. In addition to this, um, you also see 24 domestic trials of international crimes relating um, to Rwandans that have been undertaken prior, uh, without any prior immigration or extradition. Now, where is this litigation happening? Okay. It's happening, as I said, in 20 different jurisdictions. Sweden, Denmark, the Netherlands, France, Italy, the UK, Switzerland, Finland, Belgium, Germany, and Norway in Europe. In North America, it's in the US and Canada. Um, and on the African continent, it's in the DRC, Uganda, Zambia, Malawi, Kenya, South and South Africa. And in the Antipodeans, it's in New there are proceedings in New Zealand. So now I'm really going to test myself here. Let's see how I go. Um, 
this is this is a link to the um, <laughs> to the uh, data set, which will give you just a set. Uh, it'll give you a sense of how I've been looking through the cases that that um, form the basis of the analysis. Um, let me give it one more try. Inspect this closest. Ivor, do you want to give it a try, and I'll keep, I will, I'll keep yeah, chatting. So you don't have to see the data set in order to in order to be able to um, listen. Although I understand how appealing and distracting that's going to be. But in, so what I think is important, really, first to recognise is that in looking at in looking at these cases and in looking across them, what we see is the domestic orientation of the relevant law. These, what I'm terming domestic entanglements, challenge the current scholarship's focusing on international criminal law. Is that working? <laughs> Not so far. Um, okay, don't worry about it. Um, at the end, when I get to the end of the presentation, I can take you back there and we can have a look at it if anyone wants to look at any more details on the particular cases. Um, because, no, 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 it's fine. It's my own aspirations versus reality. Um, so, the, the first point is really to say that. When we, when we do start to look at how these cases are actually decided, we see these domestic entanglements. So there are a number of examples there, but if we looked um, in the US, the cases concerning Rwandan nationals have been exclusively decided under domestic administrative law. So the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, Section 208, establishes that an individual can be excluded from asylum protection if they ordered, incited, assisted, or otherwise participated in the persecution of any person on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. The standard of proof required to meet what they call this as the persecutor's bar is that there is sufficient evidence that it raises the inference of participation in persecution. What is key is this is, entirely, this is an entirely domestic standard that is separate from the standards set by the Refugee Convention. In the Netherlands, the key piece of domestic legislation is the Alien Act 2000, within which Article 35A provides the administrative means through which a residency permit can be cancelled if information that could lead to the rejection of a refugee application was withheld or incorrectly applied. So in the case of the Netherlands, it's through this administrative clause that you then see the incorporation of Article 1FA, and then they make direct reference to the Refugee Convention um, to determine whether information grounding exclusion under Article 1FA um, was misrepresented or withheld. So the Convention is then, in, in the Netherlands, the Convention is then given very specific domestic content, placing the burden on the state to, to demonstrate that there are serious grounds for believing that a foreign national is subject to the criteria and explicitly addressing the, the threshold of what constitutes committed, establishing a personal unknown participation test. So what is clear, and I can also talk about Canada and France, but what is clear is that the applicable law is embedded in legislation that is fundamentally orientated towards domestic immigration. And it makes use of standards 
set through the Refugee Convention to different degrees. In other words, we can't really have this conversation about the compatibility between ICL and international refugee law unless we actually start to look at how domestically that international refugee law is being given effect and also how it then fits into this wider administrative legal system of, of refugee regulation and, and the role that criminal law is playing in that. So it suggests that the out, at the outset that these decisions, as a result, are not just about the continued moral condemnation of international crimes to the, I would say, rather nebulous notion of an international community, but they're also doing expressive work at the domestic level about immigration law more generally. Disaggregating, then, the expressive function of these trials, I think, off offers one analytical entry point to look comparatively across the countries and start to explain some of the differences that we saw two slides ago that has led to such stark differences where you've got a large number of cases, a large number of states enabling extradition and other states denying it, the UK being one of them. And so I think if we start to really unpack some of this expre the expressive role that these cases are doing, and take seriously the work that immigration law is doing in that, we can, start to see, we can start to see why and explain some of the differences that we're seeing in the legal decisions that are coming out. So it's now routine, as I suggested at the beginning, in international criminal law scholarship to justify international criminal trials and the resultant punishment of those convicted on the basis of the expressive function of international criminal condemnation of the prohibited conduct. I think this comes at a time when international criminal law is under increasing pressure and arguments around deterrence um, have been increasingly challenged. And so we see, we, see a lot, we see this increasing agreement within ICL scholarship around the importance of this expressive function. In these accounts, it's through a few high-profile trials that courts such as the ICTR and the ICC, and now the ICC, and of course the other tribunals, which I won't name now, are able to signal to the international community as a whole the moral abhorrence of this behavior. In an extremely rare moment of agreement between Human Rights Watch and the current Rwandan government, this is, um, this is why both of those parties have come out strongly supportive of um, Rwanda's push for criminal trials for genocide in third country jurisdictions for exactly this reason, this communicative function of the wrong of genocide. These trials held domestically around the world, and we saw that there are um, 24 of them that have occurred without any preceding um, actions and, and more subsequent. We've also got two of, the, two of those trials are currently ongoing in France at the moment. Um, these trials, held domestically around the world, communicate this universal condemnation of genocide. And this collective, this collective condemnation is important. But, but I think one of the core questions of it is what, is, what in particular is getting expressed to whom, by whom, and when? The audience, the international community in these instances is not the only audience. As, the, as I've argued in relation to the domestic law, there is also a core domestic audience where the orientation is around immigration law. There is another audience which is particularly a Rwandan audience, and that audience is about 
the, the effect and the reach of the Rwandan state into the diaspora communities. And I actually, and I, I think that we can show this when we look at the particular trials. Um, and the third audio, the third expressive function has been an expressive function about governance in Rwanda, and I'll focus on this now, about the capacity of Rwanda to conduct a fair trial. Now, one of the most striking issues across all the cases in the data set is that although decided ac according to very different law, they all offer an assessment of, criminal of the criminal justice system in Rwanda. In doing so, they offer judicial expressions on fair trial rights and conditions of detention today. Here the picture is complex, as the data set shows marked differences in appraisal across, um, across the various um, jurisdictions. So, um, the, what we, we, we see a breakdown of five particular cases. So we see cases where extradition to Rwanda has been refused, um, cases where extradition to Rwanda has been refused, cases where extradition to Rwanda has been allowed, cases where the immigration decisions have resulted in deportation to Rwanda alone, um, and then cases where domestic criminal trials have been undertaken without any prior activity. Um, and then ongoing proceedings not yet decided. So here, this, this slide, this layout, basically gives you the breakdown of, how, of what's being decided by these different jurisdictions. Now, this, I think it's important just to note that in some of these cases, for example, in the Netherlands, extradition was, met, was initially denied in some of the early cases, but this reflects the most recent decision-making in relation to particular suspects. Now, I can t looking across the jurisdictions, what we see is that there are two, there remain two major points of contestation in relation to whether individuals suspected of international crimes will receive a fair trial in Rwanda. The first relates to the domestic legal framework in Rwanda, and this is relevant for both the French and the UK decisions, although um, on different reasoning. Um, and I can talk about that a little bit more if you're interested, but I'm not going to go into that now. Um, and then the second relates to the capacity to raise an effective defense. Um, and again, I'm very happy to go into the, into the specific details of that. But what I want to focus on, given the time, is I want to focus on the role that the immigration law is playing in this process. Because what we see is that in states where extradition to Rwanda has been refused, such as France and Switzerland, Immigration proceedings in these same states have adopted a more favorable reading of fair trial rights in Rwanda than those offered in the extradition hearings. Individuals are being excluded from refugee protection or having their residency permits revoked, but they are not being extradited, falling into this legal limbo that has concerned a number of scholars writing on Article 1 FA. For example, in France, in the cases before the National Courts on the Right to Asylum, the court has stated that the Rwandan judicial system provides a fair trial. So in the asylum courts, Rwanda offers a fair trial. However, once we shift to the investigative criminal chambers, um, denying extradition, various investigative chambers have raised fair trial concerns, um, including some of the, the concerns around standards of imprisonment and treatment of um, defense counsel. So once we get up to the, the final court of appeal, that isn't the justification for the refusal to extradite, but we do see very strongly this different reading of fair trial rights 
in the immigration proceedings, and then once we get to the criminal proceedings. For states where extradition has been granted, so that's what looking at um, the second collection of states there, um, particularly in the case law in the Netherlands, this is particularly notable in the, when you're looking at the case law in the Netherlands and, and Denmark, we see a convergence with immigration authorities' accounts of fair trial. So for example, in the Netherlands, the increasingly positive reading of fair trial rights in refugee exclusion cases is then later reflected um, in the extradition to, to extradite two suspects to Rwanda. The trend, evident across the whole data set, for immigration proceedings to be the first set of proceedings undertaken against Rwandan citizens has led, in the case of the Netherlands, to some concerning inconsistencies. Seen most strikingly when we compare the deportation of Jean de Dieu Munyaneza with those of more high, the high-profile extraditions of Jean-Baptiste Mugimba and Jean-Claude Iramunyane. The differences between these three cases seem to suggest that Rwandans whose extradition order has, extraditions have not been requested, but who have immigration proceedings initiated against them based on allegations of involvement in international crimes are being, the le are being left the most legally vulnerable. Munyaneza, and I want to talk about these three cases in a little bit of detail. Munyaneza's residency permit was revoked on a basis of allegation of, of his involvement in the genocide, noting his, noting his specific mention in an African rights report. On the 21st of December 2012, the Court of The Hague upheld his appeal against this decision and his residency permit was reinstated. The case was then appealed to the Supreme Court and overturned, resulting in the final removal of his residency permit. On the 19th of January, the Rwanda, so this is after these proceedings have occurred, the Rwandan National Prosecuting Authority sends an arrest warrant and indictment for international crimes to the Dutch Embassy in Kigali. On the 13th of February, Interpol headquarters sends an international arrest warrant to Interpol in The Hague. This arrest warrant reaches the Ministry of Security, of Security and Justice on the 17th of March 2015 four days between, before Munyaneza is scheduled to be deported. On the 21st of March, he was deported to Rwanda on the basis of the immigration decision and was arrested at, on arrival at Kigali International Airport. When he was arrested, he, he had never been made aware that there had been an arrest warrant. There had never been an extradition order issued for him, only an arrest warrant. And from Rwanda, he then made an appeal to the court in The Hague, saying, arguing that his proceedings should he should have had extradition proceedings. The, the his application was rejected on the basis that at the time of deportation, there was no, despite the arrest warrants, there was no extradition order, and the state was acting in accordance with its original intention to simply remove Munyaneza from its territory, following the revocation of his residency permit, granting him the right to remain. So he gets deported based exclusively on his, on his immigration status. In contrast, in the cases of Mugimba and Iramiele, these extradition orders had been issued. And here we see that initial, an initial set of extensive immigration proceedings that's then followed by a very extensive set of, um, of extradition-related proceedings 
In the immigration proceedings, we see the same very positive reading of fair trial in Rwanda. In the immigration, when we get to extradition, we see some of the divisions that we've seen across jurisdictions again um, as the case moves its way up through the courts, um, ultimately leading to the, to, the, um, to the decision allowing for the extradition proceedings. Now, what is key is that what happens next. So because, because these decisions have been decided under different legal regimes, they then have different law applicable to them once these individuals get to Rwanda. So the two individuals who have been extradited have been tried under a specific transfer law that, has, that relates to um, allegations that, that is specific to individuals who have been extradited or transferred from the ICTR. The other case is, has the individual was tried by the Gachacha courts, that Gachacha judge in abstention, that Gachacha judgment stands, he's arrested and he's currently in the process of appealing that. The first two cases have gained a, a, a reasonable level of media attention and are also being monitored by the Kenyan branch of the International Commission of Jurists. The second case um, isn't discussed at all. So, um, so what, I, what we see is how, the, how these different regimes play out in the lives of the individuals that are being subject to them. Consistent with this notably more lenient approach to fair trial assessment within the immigration regime in the countries where all the proceedings, in countries where all the proceedings happen through immigration law alone, we've seen a very favorable reading of fair trial um, and detention standards in Rwanda and deportation. In the US, this has actually included criminal prosecution inside the US for immigration-related fraud prior to deportation. So individuals are normally serving, um, those who are convicted are serving between five to 10 years for an immigration-related offense and are then being deported. We also see this in Canada with the, with the, with the high-profile deportation of Leon Mojicera and Jean-Claude Henry Siapulka. So what does this tell us? Why, why does all of this matter? So first, it shows us that the contradictory positioning in the general scholarship on Rwanda, in the social science scholarship, and the political scholarship, were dominant concerns regarding the authoritarian trajectory of governance in Rwanda are coupled with this acknowledgement of the country's significant investment in infrastructure, social welfare, and governance institutions. So we both see the dominant literature focusing on the authoritarian nature of the Rwandan state. And if we look into discipline, if we look into some of the economic and public health literature, we see, and, and early literature on the judicial structures, we see this real focus on the significant investments of the Rwandan state in infrastructure, social welfare, and governance institutions. And so I think this, the same dichotomy, the same challenge of making sense of post-genocide Rwanda is reflected in the difficult reasoning that we see in the cases. Second, and I've already been emphasizing the second point, immigration law is driving some of the work here. The effort not only to protect the, the authenticity of the refugee system as generally recognized in the literature, but also to assign the wider immigration practice, also to align with these wider immigration practices of excluding the criminal migrant, as Ben Bowling has recently argued, means that fair trial in Rwanda is generally read more favorably in the immigration system. And finally, I think it's important to return our focus to Rwanda 
and to think about this other type of, ex of potential expression within the Rwandan diaspora community and, how these and what are these legal decisions communicating there. Rwandan government indictments have driven much of this litigation. And so while fitting into, and I hope I've made this point, persuaded you of this point, so while fitting into the immigration agendas of the states that are doing the extraditing, it's also important to ask why is this policy being pursued so strongly by the Rwandan government? Now there's no doubt that one of these drivers is the need to keep the experience of the Rwandan genocide as a live issue in the international sphere, while signalling the importance of trying those involved in the violence that was undertaken to destroy in whole or in part the Tutsi ethnic group. The importance of this cannot and should not be underestimated. And it must, it must be given significant weight. However, there is other work that's going on with regard to the, with, to regard to the Rwandan government's engagement with its diaspora communities. Through a complex web of transnational cooperation made up of policing, prosecution, immigration services, the Rwandan government is successfully extending the punitive reach of the state well beyond its national borders. President Paul Kagame has just started his third term, and having been part of a political movement within the diaspora resulting in regime change himself, he is very well aware that one of the major areas of political um, contestation to his presidency comes from outside of the country. And I think here, looking at two cases very briefly in South Africa, show these tensions in a particularly striking fashion. The first concerns Kayumbo Nyamwasa, the current leader of the predominantly Tutsi diaspora opposition group, the Rwandan National Congress. Having initially been designated a refugee, Nyamwasa's status was then challenged by a South African NGO, the Consortium for Refugees and Migrants in South Africa, based on an allegation of involvement in international crimes. In this case, war crimes committed between 1990 and 2002, when Nyamasa was a member of the Rwandan Patriotic Army, um, which is now the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which is the ruling party in Rwanda. The Gauteng High Court, in finding in favor of Nyamasa, was unpersuaded by the evidential basis of the claim for his exclusion. However, on appeal, through an agreement between the parties, led by the South African Minister for Department for Home Affairs, Nyamasa's case was sent back to the Refugee Reception Office for a renewed determination. So his case is, out, is currently outstanding, but he is currently involved in ongoing litigation. The second case concerns the exclusion for domestic crimes of a Rwandan national rather than international ones. But again, the exclusion clause comes into the reasoning. In this case, the respondent was Alex Ruto, alleged Alleged, in which it was alleged that he, he had alleged that he'd been deployed by the Rwandan National Security Services of Rwanda and sent to South Africa to assassinate senior RNC members. In his account, he, he reneged on this and having informed the South African Directorate for Priority Crimes, he, was arrest, um, he went into witness protection. Sometime later, he left the witness protection program and was arrested and found guilty of being in possession of false immigration documents and driving without a valid driver's license. In upholding his appeal, which is leading to his imminent deportation to Rwanda, the, um, the, the majority decision held the respondent, having entered South Africa illegally, had failed to apply for asylum without delay. So in a valuable dissent, 
Mukumbi JA challenged this reasoning, arguing that the case should have been decided on the basis of whether Ruta would be excluded from refugee protection. The reasoning of the majority, however, I think shows that this is not an, an issue of global south to north migration, but more generally that these cases of exclusion are being decided in a context in which the social, political and legal reasoning around, what, around the offering of refugee protection is being tightened. And these and, and narrowed generally. At the same time, so these decisions serve the interests of the state in which those decisions are being reached, while effectively communicating the penal reach and presence of the Rwandan government into key diaspora communities that are currently actively involved in political organization. Now, all of Rwanda's post-genocide justice processes have been criticized for being strategically used by the government to repress political opposition, particularly within Hutu communities. In my own work, while acknowledging these critiques, I've emphasized that we still need to engage with the wider set of objectives that these accountability processes have been understood to pursue. These include the clear need within Rwandan communities, including those in the diaspora, for information about the names of individuals who were killed during the genocide and who is understood to be responsible for their deaths coupled with the need to respond to the large-scale incarceration of suspected genocideers that immediately followed the 1994 genocide. However, as the immigration cases show, universal condemnation of genocide is not the only expressive work that this litigation does. They're, in, in many ways, they're doing a lot more parochial work, signaling who is currently, who is currently being kept, effectively kept out by immigration and asylum processes, while at the same time expressing the reach and the penal power of the Rwandan state. In conversations in international criminal law, if these conversations are going to center on its expressive function, we need to be clear that we incorporate all of the different types of expressive functions that these courts are doing, not only focusing exclusively on the function of, a, of, a, of an expression of moral condemnation of those crimes. 